0: And through 14, so just another section of this chapter that's on page 901 of the ESV Pew Bibles, John 14:7 through 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of scripture. We approach it in faith. And we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to help us understand what these words mean. And then also to help apply these words to our life as we seek to follow you and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear someone say... From now on, it means something is about to change, a definitive change. Whatever has been in the past will no longer be. Have you had a from now on moment? I think most of us have had a few at least, and these can be something relatively small or these can be something big and important. Uh, Carl used to buy generic kitchen bags. But after having bag after bag rip out and and fall apart on his way to the garbage after seeing the coffee grounds and the banana peels and the the raw chicken scraps and everything else on his carpet, he said to himself as he was cleaning up this mess, from now on, I am not buying generic Kitchen garbage bags, whatever 50 cents or $1.50 I saved is not worth it. From now on, name brand only. That's a from now on moment. It's a relatively small from now on moment, but it's a from now on moment. Earlier, in fact, 22 years earlier, Carl had had a bigger from now on moment when he married his wife. He married a woman named Darla. And as they were standing in front of the church, they took their vows Part of those vows included this language. I, Carl, take you, Darla, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. That's that's the same language. That means from now on. A definitive change. What had been previously singleness would be no more. And in its place was something new, something different. A married couple, husband and wife. I think most of us could point to a from now on moment in our life. In John chapter 14, 7 through 14, Jesus is telling his disciples about a from now on moment that is about to happen. In the past, knowing God as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been concealed. From now on, it will be revealed revealed. In the past, Jesus had performed works during his incarnate ministry. From now on, his disciples would perform greater works. We're going to see what that means. In the past, prayers had been offered up to God, but not in the name of Jesus. From now on, they would be. As we work our way through this passage, we're going to look at each one of these components of his from now on statement, but I also want you to be open to the possibility that God might be calling you to a from now on moment, either in your relationship with God or in your understanding of God. So we're going to start in verse 7. Jesus had just got done saying, if you remember from last week, no one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 7, he continues to speak about the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And that's not a rebuke. It's an observation. It's a statement of fact. He's, he's not saying, you should have known me all the way, Thomas. You, you had the information all semester long. It was in the required readings. You just didn't study hard enough. You really should have known everything there is to know about me because then you would have known the Father. That's not what he's saying. They didn't have assigned readings. There were no test, uh, textbooks regarding the Trinity. The New Testament had not even been written yet. He's saying, if you had known me, then you would know my Father also. If you had known me, if you had known everything about me, the fullness of who I am, how I am the second person of the Trinity incarnate. If you had known about my power and glory, if you had known about my divinity, if you had known about my eternality, if you had known and grasped everything there is to know about me, that I share power and glory with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, if you had known all that, then you would have known the Father also. All the attributes of God are fully and equally present in all persons of the Godhead. So everything that is true of Jesus' divine nature is also true of God the Father. It's also true of God the Holy Spirit. God is the same from eternity past into eternity future. So, if they would have known fully who Jesus was, they would have known who God the Father was also. But there is no way that Jesus is holding his disciples to, to a complete, full understanding of the Trinity, of the, the incarnation of Christ, of the dual natures of Christ. There's just no way they would have, expected, uh, have been expected to know that. It hadn't been revealed yet. However, if you look at the last half of the verse, he says, from now on. From now on, you do know him, And you have seen him. In other words, from now on, all that is going to change. You you didn't have this information. You didn't have this revealed to you. From now on, that's going to be different. From now on, not only you, but the entire church is going to have a more full understanding of who I am, of who God is. When Jesus came, he revealed God with more clarity and more precision than at any other time in redemptive history. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He brought light, revelation to the church and to the world. R.C. Sproul was said to have been asked one time, what is the greatest need of the world? And without hesitation, he replied, to know God. Later in the interview, they said, well, how about the church? What is the church's greatest need? And again, without hesitation, he said, to know god how well do you know god now i'm not asking how do you imagine god to be or what you think god is like i'm not asking you your opinion of who you think god is and i'm certainly not asking how you would like god to be i'm not even asking What do you believe about God that you've believed your whole life? What I'm asking is, how well do you know God according to how God has revealed himself in his word? God has revealed himself. The Bible authoritatively teaches us who God is, what we are to to believe about him, and what he expects from us. If you want to get to know God, then you have to get to know the Bible. It's just that simple. And if we're committed to getting to know God and if we're committed to getting to know God by getting to know the Bible then we're going to want helps. We're going to need resources. I'm not denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there are resources. There are teachers. There are gifts that God has given to his church that are helpful in understanding the Bible and therefore understanding God I remember one brother in particular who made a resolution he, he had his own from now on moment he said from now on I'm not going to read fiction as much as I enjoy that as much as I enjoy spy novels and science fiction and action adventure I'm, I'm done with that he said from now on I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to read books that help me understand that book that was his resolution that was his from now on moment and I hope we realize that we stand 2,000 years approximately after Jesus declared this from now on moment. So, after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit opened minds. He revealed things to his disciples. They understood the scripture better. They could see now, at looking back, Christ in the Old Testament. But we've been there for 2,000 years as the church. This is not new territory, this is not new ground for us and for those last 2000 years we have had people in the church that have given themselves to the study of scripture they've given themselves to to unpacking and explaining and organizing and presenting the the truth of scripture in a clear manner so it is easier to understand for others and it would be foolish for us to ignore the work that has been done and those who have gone before us it's kind of like this. I remember watching a, an old movie a long time ago. It might have even been black and white. And um, it, it was a World War II movie. And the, the soldiers were on the edge of a minefield. And they had to get across. There was no mechanized or, or motorized equipment available. They, they weren't going to be airlifted over there. And they were under pressure. They were under fire. They had to get across now. They couldn't wait. And so the lieutenant started ordering men across. He said, you, go. And so the first guy ran out there, kaboom. He didn't make it very far. You, go. And he ran to the first guy, that same path, and then he extended a little further, kaboom. Next guy, and so on and so on. And finally, a soldier made it all the way across the minefield. And then everyone else could travel safely through the minefield. That's kind of how it like, like it is with the teaching and, and the helps that we have in Scripture. We've been 2,000 years since the cross and, and we have had godly men go before us and write these things down. They have found the theological and doctrinal minds in the minefield and we don't have to tread that same ground and run into those same errors. We can follow their path and make it safely through. To ignore that how foolish would it be to, to ignore all the things that we have before us? That would be like coming up to the minefield, watching that path be forged for us, and then saying, well, hold on a second, and then running 50 or 100 yards down this way and say, well, I'm going to start here. I'm going to try to travel the minefield over here. Thanks for showing me the way, but I think I'm going to try to reinvent the wheel and, and do it on my own without any helps. That's how foolish that would be. For example, we have the confessions. We're Presbyterian church. We, our confessions are the Westminster Confession, the larger and shorter catechism. Our officers take vows saying, yes, we believe these things. Why? Because they're a helpful summary of scriptural truth. They're not inerrant. They're always subordinate to scripture, but they have been recognized since the 1600s as containing helpful summaries that are accurately portraying the doctrine contained in the Bible. They point out those mines in the minefield. They also act as guardrails for the church so she doesn't careen off into apostasy or, or error or heresy. It would be foolish not to look at these documents and make use of them. So if you want to know God, yes, read the Bible first and foremost, but also read the helps, read the confessions. They help the church understand what the Bible says and we can't know God unless we know the Bible. They're available in our resource center or they're available for free. They're on our website. There's a link, there's a PDF. You can download them for free. Verse eight says, show us the father. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hebrews 3.1 says, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So like light radiating from a source, Jesus shines forth the glory and nature and character of God exact imprint means to stamp or to mark something with an impression like on a coin when a coin is stamped or marked with the impression of a ruler Uh, it was was true back then they had Caesar's likeness on on the coinage back then it's true today if you dig into your pocket or your purse and you pull out some some coins you're going to see pictures uh, an imprint of our previous rulers our presidents on them it's the same thing Jesus is the exact imprint meaning an exact representation and revelation of God's real being. Now, how can Jesus be an exact or perfect representation and revelation of God's exact being? The answer, of course, is because the one who most fully reveals and shines forth the nature and character of God is God himself. Jesus is fully divine. No mere person could perfectly reveal God's being. The dual natures of Christ is something taught in the Bible. It's been written down for, for centuries, confessed by the church. Jesus is fully and truly man. He is also fully and truly God. He is fully and truly divine. And that's why Jesus can say in verses 10 and 11, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Two times, verse 10, also verse 11. Of course, he's talking about the Trinitarian relationship between himself and the Father, that they also both enjoy with the Holy Spirit. That's why he can say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. While the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, they are one God, one being. All three are fully divine, united in one being. So they're not three parts. It's not like God is is this circle kind of pie graph with one third the Father and one third the Son and, and one third the Holy Spirit. That's not it. It's also not that that God started off as as God the Father, and then when he decided, he kind of took off the Father robe and and put on the Son robe, and then he came as the Son. And then then when he was done and he ascended, he took off the Son robe and, and, and put on the Holy Spirit robe as if he could only be one of the persons at any given time. That's not it. That's called modalism. That's heresy. No, God is one being, three distinct persons. Jesus says in verse 10, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's saying every word that you hear come out of my mouth is God's word. Every work that you've seen me done is God's work. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And he presses them to believe and accept this teaching by reminding them of his works. Remember the works that Jesus done. We, we got through with the book of signs, chapters 1 through 12. Um, we, we saw Jesus do all kinds of signs. Those were some of them that the evangelists recorded for us. They were designed to authenticate the the message and the messenger of the one doing the sign. So Jesus' authority was validated. Uh, his his authority. His, his signs pointed to the, the validity of who he was as God's sent one. So he calls on them to believe on those works. He says, can any, I mean, think back. Can anyone give sight to the blind? Uh, can, can just anyone raise people from the dead? If in the moment his disciples were having difficulty believing this teaching, this is a from now on moment. They're, they're being hit with something new. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If they're having difficulty with that, Jesus says, remember my works. I walked on water. You remember that? You have seen divine power up close. And I want you to recall that as I say these words to you. I am divine. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Verse 12 uh, a shift to works. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. So Jesus is talking his, to his disciples and he's saying, when I leave, you are going to be doing some of the same things that I did. He's talking to the apostles. And sure enough, that's exactly what we see when we turn to the book of Acts. If you remember the book of Acts, you'll see uh, Peter and Paul and, and all, a lot of the apostles performing great works, miracles. Uh, there are so many, we can't go over them all, but here's a summary verse, Acts 5, 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And those signs and works had the same uh, purpose as the signs of work that Jesus performed. They served to validate the messenger and the message that that messenger was bringing. It was, it, they said, this is a true apostle, listen to this to this representative of God. They're, they're giving you the truth. They, they're giving you what God wants you to hear. So when they, when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, when he's talking about those same kind of miraculous works, he's talking about the apostles. He's not saying that every believer down the corridor of time from this point forward, from now on, is going to be doing the regular miraculous works that I and my apostles excuse me have done and are going to do the apostles and the regular gift that's important regular gift of performing miracles ceased with the apostolic age they were there to validate the messenger and the message as they established the church as they wrote down the New Testament once that was completed the canon was laid before us we no longer need the apostles There is no new revelation being written down by anyone. So that time is over. They're no longer needed. Does God still perform miracles? Yes. Does any one person have the regular gift of performing miracles? No. No, that ceased with the apostolic age. Then Jesus says, And greater works than these will he do. Greater works than Jesus? Somebody might raise a hand and say, you mean like like greater than the cross? No, not like greater than the cross. That's not it. But we have to ask the question, what does he mean? When Jesus tells his disciples, and this one we can extend out and include the church, when he says you're going to be doing greater works than Jesus, what does he mean? Some people in an attempt to explain what this means, have said when Jesus uses the word or phrase greater works, he means greater in number. So greater in quantity, not greater in quality. So they would say that even though Jesus's works, which included the cross and the resurrection, were, were uh, more powerful in terms of glory and in terms of Uh, centrality to God's redemptive plan, they would say the church collectively over time have done uh, more signs, um, more ministry. They have seen more people come to faith than during that time period. And we have to acknowledge that's true. From a sheer number standpoint, uh, the amount of, let's say, people that have come to faith in Christ, come to saving faith, from the time of Jesus' ascension to today have been greater than the time that have come to saving faith during Jesus' period of incarnate ministry. Yes, we have to acknowledge that's true. There are a greater number of people that have come to faith. However, in reply and in objection to that explanation, it has been also pointed out that there is a perfectly good way if, if the evangelist wanted to write uh, more works than these, and instead he didn't write that. John wrote greater works So there's a reason he didn't write more works. If he wanted to refer to quantity, he could have written more, but instead he wrote greater. In addition, the greater works that his followers will be doing, it says, Jesus says, because I am going to the Father. So whatever it is that makes them greater hinges or is because of Jesus going away to the Father. In fact, in other words, after this cross work has been completed and he's ascended and exalted, that's why they're greater. So it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that the works done by his followers after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after his exaltation, they're going to have greater clarity and greater gospel precision than the works and signs that were performed before the cross. So here's what that looks like. Here are a couple examples. Before the cross, the works and signs that were performed pointed to Jesus. After the cross, the works and signs that are performed pointed to the resurrected and exalted Jesus who has been given all authority on heaven and earth. Before the cross, followers of Jesus were gathered to him as disciples. After the cross, followers of Jesus were gathered to him, became a part of his visible body, spiritual body, the church, and they did so as disciples who were filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Before the cross, much of the meaning of who Jesus was and what he was saying was hidden from his disciples and his followers. After the cross, eyes were opened, the scriptures were made clear, minds understood, and Christ crucified, resurrected, and coming again was proclaimed with boldness and precision, with the entire Old Testament being brought to bear upon Jesus as the Messiah and as the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that the Old Testament pointed to. Are we starting to get the picture? Do you see how they're greater? Some people make uh, metalworking their hobby, and they they have to have these kind of homemade small furnaces that they make. It's they're insulated with cement or some other material, and then the inner core is where the fire is. And it it's fueled by different fuel methods, but it, it burns hot. And when they start the fire, it, it's hot and, and it gives off light. And and it's you wouldn't want to stick your hand in it. It's it's fire. It's it's there. But in order to get the temperature hot enough, they will have an inlet tube and they'll put sometimes a hairdryer and they'll turn the hairdryer on and that forces air and it blows into there. All of a sudden, the the furnace ignites. It it rages with intensity. It's superheated and then that's the heat that's needed to actually melt the metal and complete the work. That's kind of like what's going on here. Everything before the cross pointed to Christ Every, everything talked about him, and it burned hot, and it burned bright, but after the cross, now when we pointed to Jesus, the resurrected Christ who had completed all that work, now those works are, are like with the, with the hairdryer turned on. Now they're raging with intensity. They burn superheated hot heat on the truth of Christ. Verse 13 and 14, prayer Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Two times. Jesus says, Ask me for anything, and whatever you ask, I'll do it. That's quite a claim. And there have been those in the church over the years that have tried to, to lay hold of that promise and then been disappointed when whatever they ask isn't answered in prayer. And I think it will help us to understand what he's saying here if we recall the context. Once again, this is still their last night together. This is still Jesus uh, securing those lines because they had been that blowing around untethered feelings so he's it's still that night he's still addressing them and assuring them and he's telling them i am leaving but as i send you out as apostles as you engage in proclaiming the gospel and establishing local churches as you persevere under persecution as you give yourself over to me completely And to gospel ministry, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Context makes a big difference. As you are doing these things, as you are engaged in ministry, as you are seeking to honor me in all you things you do, that's the context. As you ask me anything in prayer in my name, I will do it. This, this is not Jesus handing his apostles and, and anybody else, us, or anybody else in the church. This is not him handing us a, a stack of, of blank checks that he's already signed and said, whatever you want, just name it in prayer and I will answer it. I am your personal genie in a lamp. Unlimited wishes. That's not it. And that's not how we should treat it. He's saying, as you follow me, As you pray godly prayers, as you pray Christ-centered prayers in faith, and as you pray for things that glorify God and build up his church, as you pray for things that are in agreement with the will of God as recorded for us in Scripture, ask me anything and I will do it. Big difference. So these verses in no way place Jesus in a position of subordination to our prayers or to our prayer requests. Instead, he is assuring his followers that as they follow him and seek to honor him and glorify God, they can be confident that their prayers are going to be heard and answered. There is no prayer too big for God to answer. So if we want our prayers to be answered, let us pray prayers that seek to honor Christ. Let us pray prayers that are in accordance with his will. Let us pray with the attitude of thinking I exist to serve the king. When we pray like that, Jesus promises to answer our prayers. This is a from now on moment that Jesus is describing to his disciples. It signals a definitive change. What has been in the past will no longer be. And remember at the beginning I said I wanted you to be open to the, the possibility that God may be calling you to a from now on moment. From now on, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to get to know God by getting to know his word. Or from now on I'm going to read the confessions. Or maybe just one of them. I'm going to I'm going to start I'm not going to try to traverse the minefield of theological and doctrinal error on my own as if no one's ever gone before me. I'm going to read these things, these helps, these gifts to the church. From now on, I'm I'm, I'm not going to shrug my shoulders and say, you know what, I I just don't know where I stand on that or I'm not sure about that. I'm going to have a better understanding of what I believe and why I believe it. Or, from now on, I'm going to pray on a regular basis. I've put this on, off long enough. I, I know I should be, and I and I haven't. And I'm going to start, even if I have to start small. Maybe I'm going to start with meals, or maybe I've already started at meals. And I'm going to build on that. I'm going to advance. Maybe I'm going to start with my kids at bedtime. And from now on, I'm not going to make sure. Or from now on, I'm going to make sure that my prayers aren't always directed about me. I'm going to make sure they're Christ-honoring, church-honoring, God-glorifying, gospel-advancing prayers. Or maybe God is calling you to follow him for the first time. From now on, I'm going to follow Jesus. Earlier we talked about Carl. Carl. And one of his big from now on moments was when he married his wife, Darla. But here's the thing about getting married and having it be a from now on moment. In order for marriage to be a from now on moment, you have to actually get married. You can't just think about it. You can't just say, well, one day I'll do it. You can't just assume that if you love someone, then it will automatically happen. No, you have to actually commit. You have to actually go through it and and get married. And it's the same thing with following Christ. You you have to actually go through. You have to commit to following Jesus Christ. Have you committed and gone through with it and decided from now on, I'm going to follow Christ? Jesus Christ. Have you had that from now on moment where you've surrendered to your own self-directed life, you've repented of your sin, and you've put 100% of your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins? Paul talks to Timothy in the pastoral letters. He says, uh, do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is part of the regular teaching office of being a minister is to, to give people uh, an invitation, to give that general call to trust in Christ. And so I ask you, is this your time? And if so, I ask you to pray to God and tell him, from now on I'm done living on my own. From now on I'm done thinking I'm, I'm good enough to get into heaven on my own. From now on I don't want to live apart from your forgiveness from your grace, from your Lordship. But here's the other thing. I don't want anyone to do this unless they have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of the hideous nature of their sin and their desperate need for Christ. The only people that should be praying a prayer and committing to Christ are those that are actually committing to Christ. Several years ago, I remember praying with a man who was an unbeliever who was, who was ready. He was convicted and he wanted to come to Christ and I was leading him in a prayer. I, I'm not a big fan of led prayers, but he wanted help and I, I wanted to help him get connected to Christ in any way I could. So I said, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll lead you in this prayer. So I, I, I had him say, you know, Father, forgive me if He would repeat these things. And I got to this part and I said, I said, you know, say this. I said, Lord, from now on, I want to live for you. And instead of repeating exactly what I said, he said, Lord, from now on, I will live for you. And that's when I knew it was real. That's when I knew it was genuine. If you've never followed Christ, today's your for now on moment. If you've been convicted of your sin, turn to him and say, from now on, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen.